Today's reading is from Ezra 9, verses 1 to 11. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. For the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, <clears throat> that reading was uh, worth the price of admission for sure. <laughs> that was well done. So welcome to church this morning, uh, holiday weekend. Uh, if you're visiting with us from out of town, welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, if you're watching online, it's good to have you too. This is one of those tipping weeks where a lot of people are watching from different places. Um, this present study, is, it's titled Reliving the Glory Days, and the reason is that we're considering the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together. We're going to actually have kind of a twist with the book of Esther that a lot of people don't really understand. But what we're, what we're looking at in these two books, particularly in Ezra and Nehemiah, they tell the story of Babylonian exiles going back to Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild their city. They're trying to rebuild their communities. And so in that sense, it should feel like what some of you have done, what you have done and tried to enter back in, maybe going back to your hometown, maybe to resurrect different types of relationships. And what these stories tell you is that they couldn't do it. There was this deep embedded nostalgia that they had for what their lives used to be like, and they were never going to be able to recapture it. Instead, the stories tell an account of where God began to point them towards something entirely different. He expected them to commit their lives and their day-to-day -day function to something that was much greater than just recapturing the past. And so in that regard, you begin to see a lot of things that have similarity uh, to our lives. 
These, these two books tell stories about individuals with incredible courage and conviction, and they go back and they connect their lives into this bigger why, this bigger pattern that God had for them. And so as the church today, we are called to do the same thing. They were sent back, they tried to go back to rebuild a tangible temple, to rebuild a city, to reconstruct their communities and their homes. And sometimes our lives aren't that simple. It's much more difficult to try to connect our lives to the kingdom of God. What does that look like day to day? Does it look like a person who actually goes to a job Monday through Friday? Does it actually look like a, a student that continues to study and prepare herself for a career in the world? And so this is where it gets a little more complicated, and there's a transition that I think we need to make when we look at this real tension between what they did in their day-to-day -day efforts and the grand picture that we're living for in regard to the kingdom of God. Now, this week, our examination of the book of Ezra comes to the ninth chapter where Ezra takes the second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And no sooner does he get back there that his heart is completely broken. He is devastated by the reckless actions of other people, most likely people that had already been established in the land for a bit of time. And he, he engages this heartbreak in a way that provides us a lot of information. Not only is he a highly skilled priest, he is a very devout man. He's led a whole entourage, fully financed by the Persian king, back to Jerusalem. And no sooner does he get everything set up and re-engaging in his priestly duties of re-establishing worship in the temple, no sooner does he does do that that he gets this report that everything is going off the rails. And so again, we have another point of contact that fits into our lives many times. And I think it begs this question, while I think there's many times, perhaps the majority of the time, that we would believe that we need to stay calm, that we need to be able to engage whatever life is bringing our way, whatever the circumstances require of us, we need to stay calm. We need to be able to maintain our composure. But that can't be all the time. That can't be all the time. In fact, if you are always calm, you're going to miss the opportunities that require you to act very immediately and very decisively with conviction. And so it begs the question, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between an occasion where you kind of need to take one for the team? You need to let an offense go without taking issue. Or the times that you have to take immediate decisive action. See, those are two entirely different things. Now, I believe that this account of Ezra gives us three very different snapshots in time that reveal a significant amount of practical information in regard to how to navigate something like this. The first is that this story tells us the problem that actually broke his heart, what actually brought him literally to his knees. And then secondly, we see his immediate reaction. And then thirdly, just in these 11 verses, we see another snapshot that shows you a very considerate response. In other words, he's acting entirely different by the end of these verses. And so I want to launch into this by just considering the problem that broke his heart. 
Um, like chapter 7 and verse 1, this section in the book of Ezra begins with like an ellipsis. It's a span of time that has passed, and it simply says, after these things. Now, we don't know for sure how much time has passed. The text doesn't really tell us very much. Most of the commentators and the scholars that have tried to analyze this believe it's long enough for Ezra to get there. The month, the journey that took him from Persia back to Jerusalem was a very dangerous journey, and it, was, it took about four months, 120 days. Um, there was a brief delay in the beginning, so you might say 110. But there's just enough time for him to get back home and to reestablish his priestly duties with this group of uh, exiles that have returned. And no sooner does he get back, he receives this report. And so there's probably in all likelihood maybe one or two months in time from the time he gets back to the time that this takes place. Now, I think there's one thing that's worth kind of examining. There's actually two that we're going to look at and kind of drilling into this to better understand the circumstance. The, the first one is how he heard about the problem. And I think we can kind of grant him a little slack because many of us have lived through a period of time over the last couple of decades at least in which numerous problems regarding religious issues aren't reported by religious authorities. And so you take some of the sex scandals that have happened in the church in different parts of the world. When they're reported by public authorities as opposed to the within religious authorities, religious authorities who now become aware and their conviction compels them to stand up and to tell the truth. That didn't happen in our time, but it didn't happen here either. And we don't know for sure the nature of the authorities that came and gave this report to Ezra, but we know with almost uh, uh, absolute certainty they weren't religious authorities. In fact, the report tells you that the corruption went all the way to the top. And so how he learned the report should cause us to actually say, yeah, I can see where that would really upset you. I can see where that would cause you to almost boil with frustration to get, not only just get there and get things started on track, and then to find out that you've got a problem that goes all the way to the top of the pyramid of, of religious structure. And so there's a little bit of slack, I think, that we, we should grant him from there. The second thing that I think that we need to ask of this text is, how severe was the actual problem? And this is where it really gets interesting, because as we read it as 21st century American Christians, we read this story, and it seems as if his reaction is like off the charts. It's like, who does that? Who stands up, tears a shirt, tears a cloak, pulls the hair out of his own head and beard, and sits there, in the, King James uses this term, a stonied, which is, I had to look it up because I've never even heard it before. And it simply means to be stunned to the point that you can't even react. It's like, who does that? That seems so disproportionate to the offense. Now, this is where, like I said, it gets kind of interesting because the more you look at this, the more you begin to see in the context that he had a lot of reason to be this upset. There was a lot of reason for him to, to see it in this way. Now, some of the explanation for us is that we live in a culture that interracial marriage is perfectly natural to us, and it should be. But it wasn't like that 
for the Jews or the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, I think it's interesting if you step back from this context, you have to admit that interracial marriage throughout the Old Testament wasn't strictly forbidden. In fact, there's a number of stories that tell you very significant, significant characters in the Old Testament were married to non-Jewish wives. And uh, perhaps the most distinct of that is in the book of Ruth. You find out that David is the descendant of one of those marriages. And so they weren't completely off limits. Now, what was off limits was the marriage to a person who would take you away from your faith. In other words, no sooner did you enter into the marriage that you found yourself worshiping other gods. Not only did there, was there a compromise in the, own, the function of your own faith, you actually were engaging in a completely different faith. Now, those were strictly forbidden. You take the, uh, in Deuteronomy 7, in verse 3 and 4, Moses wrote this. He said, now, we captured in the, in, in the beginning, of this, beginning of the story when it says, with their abominations. They intermarried people with these abominations. Now, going to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 3 and 4, it says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn, turn, away, your, uh, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And this was probably obviously a part, Ezra was an expert of Old Testament law, this was part of his probably teaching. And so this, this affront, just right after, on the heels of getting back into Israel, and to restart, kind of rekindle this community and rebuilding their city, this would have been a big deal. And so I think this is where it begins to kind of line up a little bit. Now, the report names three groups of people that pretty much covered the whole entire group of the remnants. It just says the people of Israel, which is the broadest group. Then it says the priests and the Levites. Now, I had somebody in a coaching, question, coaching call this week ask, well, what's the difference between a Levite and a priest? Well, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And so you had to be a descendant of the Levitical order to be qualified as a priest. But just because you were a Levite didn't mean you were going to be a priest. So when he names these three groups, he's actually pretty, pretty much naming the whole group of the remnant. And now, the group itself is most likely, most people believe, it was a group of people that had gone back in the first wave. So Zerubbabel took this larger group than, than Ezra took and got back, had them reestablished in some 60 years, 58 years, best count, um, has transpired, and Ezra gets back, and then he receives these reports from probably public officials. So we're, you're going to see in chapter 10, verse 18, that it went so high that even the sons, the actual sons and nephews of the high priest Joshua himself is, are involved in this. And so it stinks all the way to the head. Everything that he has heard in this report goes all the way to the top. And he is like beside himself. Now, one last thing that would have made this even more difficult, in chapter 8 and verse 22, right before they leave Persia, um, they, want, they want Ezra to go to the king to ask for a military escort. And because Ezra had already told the king of Persia 
The hand of our God is on, on us, and he's against anyone that disobeys him. Because he had already said that, it was like putting a marker down, he couldn't bring himself to go back to the king and ask for this escort. And so they made this 120-day journey without a military escort, carrying all of this gold that the king of Persia actually sent back to the temple. All the gold and the silver uh, fixtures and all the things that they used in the temple worship, all of that went back on this caravan. And so it was extremely dangerous. Now, this would have aggravated the situation because he put himself out there only to get back to Israel to realize that nobody was fearing God. And so this would have actually accentuated the whole, the severity of the problem would have been off the charts. So that was the problem that broke his heart. Oh, I hate when I do that. I don't think I've done that in 20 years. <laughs> Literally. Okay. Okay, so let's look at his immediate reaction. Now, Thomas Leonard, I just finished classes this week in the school that I'm going to. Thomas Leonard was the founder of basic modern-day coaching. And he also was one of the founders of the International Coaching Federation that oversees coaching everywhere. And so this guy is a pretty big, big name when it comes to coaching. Now, Thomas Leonard believed that there's actually an evolutionary process that you go through in regard to the way that you respond to your environment. Okay? He, he believed that you can actually look at it. And so this is what it looks like. It starts with an overreaction, and then you actually learn how to, to not overreact, and then you just simply react. And I'm going to explain this in a moment. And then you actually learn how not to react, and then you start to respond, and then that ultimately moves into a disposition called over-respond. Now, he uses an example like this. Say you're driving and you're moving really slowly in traffic and someone cuts you off, okay? That's the scenario. Now to overreact is to get out of the car and bang on the, the guy's window. That's an overreaction or other things that might come to mind. Now, once you kind of get over that a little bit, you can move from an overreaction to just a simple reaction. Now, a simple reaction would be to hit, hit the horn, shake your fist, or other gestures to show your disapproval. And so there's a reaction, okay? From that, a person actually becomes more thoughtful. And it changes from just a mere reaction to a response. So a response would be to observe what has happened and to calm yourself down because now your, your brain is engaging the situation rather than just reacting to the situation. Now, an over-response is to take mass transit to get a chauffeur or move to Montana. And so that, what that person is doing, now that, that sounds funny and I laughed the first time I read it too, um, but what he's saying is that you can actually see where these occurrences are taking place. And what a person can do is design her environment so that those don't happen anymore. You can take them entirely out. And so that last one, say, okay, if I, if I don't like this reaction I keep having when I get cut off and I'm invariably going to get caught in traffic and people are going to cut me off because we live in Denver, I'm going to have to learn how to deal with this. So you can design your environment by starting to take the train, by taking Uber. I laugh at the Uber drivers that get upset because I don't get upset. 
And so there's this over-response, a span from overreaction to over-response. Now, I think it's really interesting that this account shows the spectrum. This report shows how you can consider Ezra's reaction all the way across the span, from an overreaction immediately to an overresponse by the time he's done. Okay? Now, in verses three and four, his initial response, I think we have to admit, is off the chart. We, we were singing this morning, and I was just asking myself, I wonder if Ezra was here, if you ask him if he would change his response. And it, I, I can say that from kind of this nostalgia disposition. My wife, over the last couple of weeks, she took all the old VHS videos that we have taken of all our children over the years. She took them, in, she took them to one of those shops that convert them to DVDs. And so we've been watching all this old stuff. And there's so many things I did on those videos that I would not do again. There's so many things I wish. There's so many clothes I wore that I wish I had not worn those things. And I wonder if we had Ezra here, if we could ask him, would you react the same way? I would tend to think he wouldn't. This is enshrined in Scripture, so billions of people have read this account over and over and over. And I think he would say, I probably wouldn't react the same way. I probably wouldn't. And so verses 3 and 4 show that his reaction is just like he really loses it completely, off the reservation. Now, the account records three actions that he took as soon as he heard the report. He tore his garment and his cloak. He pulled the hair from his head and his beard, and then he sat appalled. Well, the first is fairly common in the Old Testament. To tear your clothes, it, it, the occasion of grief, intense grief, oftentimes brought a tearing of clothes. You see it in two chapters, actually, in, in Job, chapter 1 and Job, chapter 2. He tears his clothes both, both times. And so that's fairly common. The, the pulling of the hair out by the roots of your own head, this is the only place that it occurs. Now, some of you already might know your Bibles well enough. You're thinking, well, it does occur in Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't pull his own hair out. He pulls out the hair of other people. Now, that might be an overreaction reaction too. But no other place in Scripture does it record somebody actually grieving to the extent that he grabs hands full of hair and just pulls them out by the root. And then he grabs them from his beard and pulls them out. Only place in Scripture that we see that kind of mourning. Now, the last one's really interesting because interesting it, it said that he sat appalled, and I already kind of told you that the King James rendered this a stony, which it basically meant to be in such utter shock that you're incapable of moving for a few moments. You can't respond. It's just like you become frozen. And he sat there appalled. And so there's pretty substantial way to conclude that Ezra's initial reaction is an intense overreaction. He's so shocked by it. Now, there's a lot of speculation that would say, well, how did he not know? How did he not know? And I, th I think that argument or that question would abbreviate the time that he was actually there. It had to happen fairly quickly 
for him not to be aware of it. Because I don't think this is staged. I don't think he knew, and then he's just reacting so other people would see how severe the situation is. I don't think he had a clue. And when he's told, he is just, it's just like a visceral reaction. It's just like your gut. It just almost makes you want to puke. And a lot of times I've talked to some of you that have had things happen. You might have had a, a spouse that was unfaithful or a loved one that died. And the news just, it just tied you in knots inside. And that's what, what we have here. We have an immediate reaction that was an overreaction. Now that brings us to the third and the final part, his considerate response. And it begins in verse 5, and it goes all the way to the end of these verses. And it shows he really is engaging with his mind now. Now, the, the first indication of that is that in verse 5, it, it talks about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, this is where most, most scholars would say, you see, there he's returning to himself again. He's fasted, which simply meant he refused to eat from the time he received the report to the evening. But he knew it was the time of the evening sacrifice. And they say, most scholars believe that's the tipping point. That's where he began to kind of regain his senses, to come to himself, is the way we might put it. And so he rises from probably being on the ground, appalled, and his clothes are still torn, so he hasn't changed, but he rises to engage in this priestly practice again. Now, the text is to verse 6 and 7 that record a surprisingly lucid account of Ezra's awareness of his uh, emotional condition. So now, not only is he beginning to be conscious of what's going on around him, he's really aware of what's going on inside of him. Now, I mean this with all sincerity. Some of you are in much more contact with what's going on inside of you than the rest of us. Now, I might be the extreme. I have learned how to tune a lot of my internal reaction off. And so I can do six appointments in a counseling day back to back. And it's, it, it, it's like it upsets me, but it bounces off or something. But we see here that Ezra is remarkably lucid in his own awareness. When he, he actually makes a statement, he says, I'm ashamed and blush to lift, my, to lift my face to you. He's really in touch with himself. His assessment, there's a lucid assessment of the corporate guilt that he now is party to. When he begins to say, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Not only does he, is he aware of himself, he's aware of his corporate standing in a community of people that are now proving to be renegades. He trusted them. And now he's back in this situation and there's like no bottom. And he's very lucid of that. Third, we also see that he says... He has this sense of a remembrance of Israel's history and the record of disobedience and the devastating consequences that God brought upon them. And so we see that in verse 6 and 7. And then there's this shift that takes place that is truly remarkable in verses six, or eight, eight, 8 and 9. 
and they record a shift from the negative things to this unbelievably lucid understanding of what God had done for them. Now, we'll get to the, what I think that was doing inside of him in just a moment, but in verse 8, it records the shift from a rebellion, both presently as well as historically. He's brought that into focus in his mind to this idea that, that for this brief moment, for a brief moment of favor, God has left a remnant that would secure a hold within God's holy place in order for God to brighten their eyes and grant them a little reviving in their slavery. Wow. What he's basically saying, I can't believe we're squandering this opportunity. The term hesed is God's loving faithfulness or loving kindness. We see it throughout the Old Testament. It's the most common reference to God's faithful interaction with his people. And that's the one he uses. He said, in spite of all of that, we have this little window. You know, this would almost be like watching a football game and your team is down by four points and they have one last drive and they get like two holding penalties in a row. And you think, there goes that opportunity. They had this one shot and they just completely blew it. That is what verse 8 and 9 are like. And so he shifts from this, how bad we are, to this unbelievably gracious moment in time where God wants to revive them. He's almost daring them to hope again, to believe again. And he knows they're letting it just slip through their fingers. The contrast between verses 6 and 7 and I think 8 and 9 are I, I don't believe at all that it can be an attempt to lessen the impact. I think in all likelihood that if anything, it would have just exponentially increased the pain. But he's still responding. He doesn't lose it again. Now for some of you, this should tell you a lot. That when you get to the point that you actually start responding, you're capable of far more than you think you are. Some people tell me all the time, I can't, it's too hard to talk about this. And it's like, now you need to trust. Trust yourself just a little bit that you can get through this now. Because it's not, it's not like what was before. And he is pushing himself past the edge. And I, I don't think that there's anyone, when you look at the last verses here, in verse 11 and, uh, 10 and 11, it's very understandably that he's so lucid that he's completely at a loss as to what they should do. He has no idea what to tell them to do. And he's the leader. They've watched him just pull, literally tear his hair out. That's not what happened to me, by the way. They've watched that. 
They watched him just like comatose. And now wake up, come to, and be so lucid that he pushes him to the point and he says, I don't know what we should do. I have no clue. Without question, as we started, there are times where our response should be to maintain our composure and stay calm. Ironically, I, I did a survey of many verses in the book of Proverbs, and it never says that a wise man or a wise woman never loses her composure. It never says that. I was surprised. Not even once. It always says that wisdom makes her slow to anger. It doesn't eliminate anger. It makes her slow to anger. And so I think that that would naturally, I'm going to try to close and give you some, tighten this up a little bit, that would cause you to say that the overwhelming majority of your response to heartbreak should be to maintain your composure. But if that's all you do, you're wrong. There is a time that you should lose it. And if you don't, there's something wrong. You see, when Paul says, just like David wrote in Psalm 4.4, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not. If there are not times that your circuits are froze, they're just fried by what's going on, you're too disattached. You've learned how to keep yourself so aloof that now you're disattached. There's times that you should lose it. You should know that deep inside of you, I need to act immediately and decisively. And so Christianity, of all people, we as Christians should be able to say, okay, I need to have both in my repertoire. Now, I'm going to disappoint some of you by simply saying wisdom is the only arbiter between those two. I wish I could give you some condensed little way that you could say, okay, here's the time to stay calm, and here's the time where you need to lose it. There's nothing in the Scripture or in my own experience that would allow me or even cause me to want to tell you that. So this is a matter of wisdom. What is it for you that should compel you to a broken heart that acts with immediacy and decisiveness? And what should you know to be the matters that you would cause yourself to stay calm? Only wisdom can tell you that. In the case of Ezra, I don't believe that it's an overstatement to say that this heartbreak would not only become the occasion for Ezra to demonstrate what is known as his greatest response in leadership. This heartbreak is what made him a better man. It forged in him a certain kind of character, a certain kind of conviction that, that made him a truly remarkable leader. Now, Alan 
Elaine de Baton, I think that's the way you say that, he was a philosopher that spent many years trying to analyze Frederick Nietzsche's insistence on the fact that a fulfilling life requires embracing rather than running from these types of difficulties. And after all of his conclusions, this is what he wrote, the most fulfilling human projects appear inseparable from a degree of torment. The sources of our greatest joys lying awkwardly close to those of our greatest pains. Why? Because no one is able to produce a great work of art without experience, nor achieve a worldly position immediately, nor be a great lover at the first attempt. And in the interval between initial failure and subsequent success, in the gap, between who we wish one day to be and who we are at present must come pain, anxiety, envy, and humiliation. We suffer because we cannot spontaneously master the ingredients of fulfillment. Nietzsche was striving to correct the belief that fulfillment must come easily or not at all a belief ruinous in its effects, for it leads us to withdraw prematurely from challenges that might have been overcome if only we had been prepared for the savagery legitimately demanded by almost everything valuable. I wish that a Christian had written that. Stories like the one we've just considered show us just how true that is. So perhaps the greatest benefit that came to Ezra by having his heart broken is to realize that what he was trying to do wouldn't come easily. And he'd have to stand against a lot of people to accomplish it. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. As we age, should we not overreact or lose it due to learning throughout life? I don't know, that's an interesting question. I, I could see it going either way. I, I, I could see experience causing like even the account that I told you, and looking back, the, the, this one piece of film that we were watching, it, it, we were back in California during 89 to 90, 92, as when we came home. And for some reason, my wife videotaped two Easter days, a year apart. And my oldest son finds an Easter egg and drops it on the ground two years in a row. And my youngest daughter yesterday watched it and said, you said exactly the same thing both times. Now, watching that would cause me to not say anything. Say, it's just an egg. Let it go. You don't need it as a teaching moment with your son. 
And so I, I tend to think that our experience makes us, it in, increases our tolerance instead of diminishes it. But now I can see it the other way that would cause you to see that some things are far more serious than you thought they were. And perhaps for some of you, you can look back and think, why didn't I say something? How did I just sit there and do nothing? I, I can see it either way. And like I tried to be as careful as I could, wisdom is the only arbiter between staying calm and truly losing it. Great question, though. All right. I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to take communion. I hope you'll take a few moments to examine your life. Where are you on this spectrum? Are you at a point that you can embrace the heartbreaks of life, knowing that you're never going to accomplish anything meaningful without them? They're necessary. Or are you still living in, even worse, a, a, a religious bubble that causes you to think if you're good enough, if you pray enough, if you give enough money, if you're kind enough to other people, that somehow God's going to withhold all these things from you? If anything, you should probably realize that if you have that kind of faith that is growing inside of you, the last thing God's going to do is keep these things away from you. Because he disciplines every son that he receives. Christianity should have never been turned into a way to avoid the challenges of life. So during your examination, just ask yourself, have I learned how to be okay when things don't go the way I want? Have I learned how to step into them and trust God? what he knows is best. Because if you haven't, you need to confess that you still don't believe one of the most important statements in all of Christianity. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be moments that would give us startling clarity Ironically, these last couple of days, me being able to watch pictures from 25, 30 years ago and see myself in relation to some of those events, how ironic it would be that I could stand here this morning and being able to say, man, I wish I would have understood more. I wish I had done things differently. But perhaps this is why this story of the, maybe perhaps the most devastating heartache and heartbreak that Ezra would ever encounter is recorded in 11 verses. And he's so shocked that even pulling the hair from his own head and beard makes sense in the moment. I pray that you would allow us a few moments of intense clarity to really ask ourselves that deep and probing question as to whether we really trust you. I pray during this communion, your name would be honored.
in these discussions that we have with ourselves, as well as our worship together. We commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.